Private Lender Podcast, Episode 129. The Private Lender Podcast quote of the day comes to us from Ben Bernanke, who said, With respect to their safety, derivatives, for the most part, are traded among very sophisticated financial institutions and individuals who have considerable incentive to understand them and to use them properly. This is the Private Lender Podcast, the show that shares practical advice and know-how for new and seasoned lenders, from private mortgages on single-family houses to joint ventures on commercial projects and beyond. Discover details about investment vehicles that you won't find at your local bank or online broker. Listen and learn from private lenders and real estate investors, as well as from professionals and entrepreneurs, as they share the details, strategies, and the insight that allows for successful and prosperous lending. Now, get ready to increase your ROI. Here's your host, Keith Baker. Hello, Lender Nation. Greetings and welcome to episode 129 of the Private Lender Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Baker, and I'd like to thank you for sharing your time and your ears with me today. If you're looking for practical tips and advice on private lending and how to keep your money safe, then you are in the right place. But if you want to learn from my mistakes so that you can both avoid them and profit from them, well, then pull up a chair and pour yourself a drink, my friend. Get a notepad and a pencil and take some notes because this podcast is just for you and I'm dedicated to giving people just like you and me the knowledge and confidence for successful and profitable private lending. So look, if you want to look into join a community of private lenders, then head over to the Private Lender Podcast Facebook group to connect with other private lenders to share experiences, stories, and opinions. Just not political, sexual, or religious. I'm kidding. Anyway, but seriously, go over to the show notes page for the link, or you can simply go to Facebook groups and search Private Lender Podcast group. I hope everyone is doing well. Since summer has officially begun, we are now into the month of June, the back end of the second quarter, and there's a lot, a lot of fun stuff coming out. The uh, Private Lender Academy is going to launch next month, so stay tuned to privatelenderacademy.com for more information on that. I'm looking for a July 6th, July 7th launch date. However, if you go over and click on apply now, go to privatelenderacademy.com forward slash apply. Go ahead and get on the list for your chance to get some goodies like discounts or pop-up group calls, uh, Facebook coaching calls. You won't be able to participate via Facebook. You'll have to come in through through the Zoom. But anyhow, privatelenderacademy.com forward slash apply to get on the list for those early bird discounts and goodies. So before we get to the brass tacks of today's show, I wanted to say that I have not had a retail mortgage loan officer on the show yet on purpose. They've been, one has been on my list, but I wanted someone that could bring a little more. And it's not that I haven't been approached. And I have several friends that are loan officers, but unfortunately, I just didn't feel that anyone really clicked or really stood out as someone who could you know, provide something different and unique to the private lender audience here. But today's guest is different because I sought her out and asked her to come on today's show and share her experience with us for two reasons. One is her driven spirit and can-do attitude. She'll find a way. She'll figure it out. No problem is too big. I really like that. And also her experience. She has so much experience through several market cycles. Our guest today has been in the mortgage industry since she was 21 years old. She began as a receptionist and quickly rose through the ranks and became a loan officer. She's been through and survived the savings and loan crisis that started in 1986 and went into the 1990s, the dot-com bubble of 2000, and most recently the Great Recession or global financial crisis of 2008. And she didn't just survive these, she thrived through them. So let's get to the heart of the matter and to the interview with Jill Underwood. 
Lender Nation, please help me welcome Miss Jill Underwood to the Private Lender Podcast. Jill, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm excited. There is so many reasons that I wanted you on the show, but let's tell the audience exactly the biggest of the reasons, me being you are a loan originator, a loan officer, right? I am. Yes. Tell us about what you do for your clients right now. Well, my tagline is that I help people make great decisions about their home financing. And there have been many years in my industry where people didn't make great decisions, but I'm still here making you and helping you to do the right thing. So it's a great tagline. And you should never ask a woman how old she is, but you've been doing this for a while. Like you said, you're still here. <laughs> You know, like you've seen some market cycles and you go back. I mean, your mom was in the, or the realtor, correct? Yeah. I'm proud to say my age. I'm 61. I got in the mortgage business in 1981. So yes, I've seen a lot. I've seen many of a recession and I've seen some very serious market changes as well. And I'm still here. Yes. My mother was a real estate agent when I was growing up and I have a lot of older brothers and sisters by the time I became a teenager, being a sponge of information, they were mostly gone. And so I got mom kind of all to myself. So I would seriously just follow her around and hang out at the real estate office. And she taught me how to talk to people. She taught me about negotiating and how to keep everybody happy with negotiations. And she taught me about things like equity. A 13 or 14 year old should know what equity means, but I did. And so later when I was, you know, 20, I was 20 years old and just broke as hell. And she was a top producer with Century 21 at the time. And there was a big Century 21 convention in Vegas, you know, their top producer convention. And at the last minute, my dad didn't want to go. So she took me. <laughs> so I got my first taste of a real estate convention when I was 20 years old in Las Vegas. It was awesome. <laughs> I was about to say, that's got to be quite the experience. It was. It was pretty cool. And that was your first seminar conference? It was my very first any type of seminar or conference. Boom. Welcome to the big leagues. Was, <laughs> right. And my mom and I were real tight. And we actually, at one point, thought that we wanted to open a real estate office together. And I actually went to college. I have a degree in real estate. So I am still degreed in my industry. But it never materialized for us to open our own office together. What happened is when I took the real estate finance class in my college courses, it just clicked with me. It was like, that's it. The law class, forget it. I didn't understand a word that man was saying, but the real estate finance just really clicked with me because she was already teaching me how to talk to people and the math was just a breeze. And I still, there's a lot of math involved, a lot of algebraic equations that I do. So I ended up in the mortgage business. I literally started as a receptionist at Fort Worth Mortgage in Richardson, Texas. And then I went to assistant to the processors and then processor, senior processor, assistant, you know, to the loan officer and then loan officer. And I've just stayed on the front lines all of these years because I really do enjoy being on the front lines, helping the people. And now I just negotiate with underwriting. <laughs> <laughs> Right. That's what we do. I'm sure that's all you do right now. <laughs> it's a big deal. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's a little bit about my history and my background and how I got to where I am today, 40 years later. God, that's a big number. 
number one, congratulations. You don't get, you know, this far at that age without, you know, doing something right. And your story and how you've, you've seen so much, and there's so much continuity in the last 40 years in your head, basically, of the real estate and the mortgage market. Whereas most folks that I talk to got in and out at some point, right? So they'll talk to you about 08 all they want, but they're not going to talk to you about the SNL crisis back in the 80s, right? Because they weren't there, right? right? They weren't around when the dot-com boom broke or, you know, whatever correction drop or whatever. So that is, is precisely the reason, like, I haven't had a loan officer on this show for a reason, because this is, you know, private lending and not to retail, right? So most of my loans, I don't go through an RMLO. I don't have to. It's not a retail loan. It's not subject to Dodd-Frank. It's a business loan from one investor to another. So there's, there's a difference there. But at the same time, I want to avoid the confusion between the loans. However, somebody who's been doing this, you know, look, what does the real estate market follow? The retail market, right? So like, you know, buyers and sellers, all that, it's all rolled into one, right? So then I got to the point, I'm like, okay, I'm doing a disservice by not having loan officers on speaking about the retail side because we follow it, right? And then right out of the gate, bam, 40 years. Can we just like, we just put this wire in your head and download onto this old hard drive right here? Just... <laughs> 08, 09, that was actually caused by the mortgage. You know, a lot of people making stupid loans and then collateralizing them and selling them off and then buying insurance products that didn't even credit default swaps. Anyhow, that's the kind of technical, but we've been through that. Let's go back to around, was it 2000, the dot com, right? Everyone was becoming a millionaire. Sounds familiar. Yep. Take us back there. Do you see any similarities between now and and 2000, for example? We've got two decades in between or, or differences and similarities, I should say. Back then, everybody got a loan. And there were a lot of stupid loans back then too, because that's when it all started with all the stated income loans, right? We did a lot of those people who probably didn't really qualify. Was that decade? It was late 90s. That started, I was kicking around. Okay. Because I knew we were going to talk about 08. So now you took me back to 2000. Now I got to really think back. Sorry. Yeah. Just, yeah <laughs> we'll go back and then we'll, go, then we'll hit 08. But yeah. You know, there's just been so many times in this industry where things just, it's just ebb and flow. And a lot of it has to do with where rates are. A lot of it has to do with who's president at the time, because some presidents will come out and their platform is everybody gets a home loan, you know, everybody gets the American dream. And then other presidents will come along and you got to clean up the mess and things tighten up. So I have seen so many swings of the pendulum from far left to far right in underwriting guidelines. And every time something bad happens, whoa, we all get called in, we all get retrained on whatever it is. So there's been so many times and like every 10 years, something changes, you know, maybe 11 years, but about every 10 or 11 years, it just changes and swings back the other direction. Does that answer your question? Well, no, that's definitely in the, I like how you tie it to the platforms and that that's a great segue into. It's very true. Coming out of the nineties, we had Clinton who really, I mean, in my opinion, not to get political, Clinton really wasn't a Democrat. I mean, in my mind, he was on the democratic party. He was, you know, certainly to the left side, but business wise, I never really considered him a Democrat. However, there was the, you know, everyone gets a piece of the American dream. It was, he was the first one. That really, and back then too, it was like, oh, those lenders, they're discriminating. We literally, we all got called in and had to go through discrimination training again. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Everybody gets a loan. Yeah. It's kind of funny because I, you know, so we went through that and I would say that it took me eight years to go through college. I'm no dummy, right? Like (laughs) instead of four, (laughs) but I was coming out of 
you know, out of that, when the dot-com boom hit and I remember my first sales job, it didn't last long. It was horrible, but it was selling window tent. And they just put me in these brand new neighborhoods with these huge houses and everybody, you know, was a seed round investor for whatever dot-com. And it was just crazy. The housing market, crazy money. And then boom, it dried up, right? We get eight years of, of Bush. And then, you know, basically as soon as Obama gets in, it's like Bush was more Democrat than he was Republican in that sense because it was bubbling and then bam, the gates opened. Can you fog a mirror? That, yes. If you, I remember those times and we were just busy as could be and it didn't matter how much money you made. Oh, it, it just, just write down a number. Just write down a number. And Freddie and Fannie bought this. They allowed this. It was their guidelines. I should say we should back up. So, and explain that a little bit that when you sell a loan or, or a loan is underwritten, it is done so in conformance with the Freddie and Fannie guidelines so that that loan can then be sold to another lender. For some reason, I keep, Wells Fargo keeps buying my mortgages. I try to get away from them. I can't. They just, they buy my mortgages. So that is the, I guess the standard by which loans are underwritten. And I guess what I'm getting at is um, you're pulling out some anger in me for Freddie and Fannie for allowing. (laughs) (laughs) I do that a lot. I'm good at that. The thing about on my side of mortgage lending, you know, a traditional mortgage lender who's going to sell our loans to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, which is ultimately the government, or even our FHA and VA loans, all of those are ultimately sold to the government. And On my branch of lending, an underwriter's sole job is to make sure that we have a loan that we can sell on the secondary market. Secondary market, which ultimately means that this loan is going to be a security on Wall Street. It takes about four months after closing for this note, this paper, to be a security on Wall Street. So leading up to the 08 crisis, it was like, everybody gets a loan. Everybody gets a loan. Oh, let's make 125% of your value loan, right? And everybody got, we were doing loans where you could buy investment properties, like a rental property with zero down. You could seriously get an 80% first mortgage, 20% second mortgage and buy rental properties with nothing down. It was crazy. Yes, please. And it, I know, right? Where is that today? That all of those, there was just so much going on. And because everybody thought, oh, this bubble will never burst. And that's what they did on Wall Street. Because at the time, I had clients who worked for, oh, shoot, now the name of the company escapes me, where they, they're buying securities. And they would call me and say, okay, Jill, what are you selling on the front lines? Because they would know that in four months, they're going to be selling it on Wall Street. So they always had the end of what was going on out on the front lines because they'd call me and ask me. And so they just kept going, man. They just kept rolling. Everything just rolled and rolled. Fannie Mae said, Freddie Mac, everybody, if you can fog a mirror, if you've got a social security number, you can have a loan. Job, okay, good. You got one? Cool, we'll give you a loan. You want to buy rental properties? Cool, here you go. They were just handing out the money. And as we all know, you can't do that forever. You just can't. Something's got to stop. But the people on Wall Street, there's the problem with 2008. Nobody thought it was going to stop. Everybody thought this was going to go on forever. And it doesn't. It can't. Nothing can. Just like our run-up in values right now. And the difference between the crash of 2008 and where we are right now, the difference is that in 2008, leading up to that, everybody was highly leveraged. Everybody owed 
100%, if not more, of the value of their home. So as soon as everything crashed, and oh, remember the option arm, the countrywide option arm. Oh, it's 1% interest rate. No, it's not because it was negative amortization. So instead of your loan balance paying down every month, your loan balance went up. Well, that's just sure to implode at some point, right? So, but back then there just wasn't the same amount of equity and properties. There was little teeny tiny equity and properties, if any at all. Now in today's world, everybody's made really good decisions over the past decade. Everybody's got fixed rate mortgages and a lot of equity. And I think that that's the difference. And I don't see that we're going to have any kind of bubble burst or any kind of crash. Will values level off and maybe come down a little bit? Absolutely. My crystal ball says that'll happen in about 18 to 24 months. I'm always happy to get out my crystal ball. (laughs) Right back at you. Get mine right here. (laughs) There it is. I need one of those in my office. I was talking to uh, one of my dad's friends, advisors, he works Wall Street stuff, but I was equating, I said, I don't see a big, I don't see 08 coming again. That was like a perfect storm. Like you said, there were arms, there was the Wall Street bit, which really fueled it, but I don't see a repeat of that right now or coming. I see your typical Wall Street 10% correction, right? Just to knock the party down enough, you know, hey, oh, okay, maybe we need to tighten up a little bit. And I'm thinking maybe that 10% somewhere in there, 18 to 24 months, um, I'm not saying you're, I hope you're wrong. I hope it's sooner because I want to put some money to work as an investor. But uh, anyway, that's I say if that happens, it's good for you, bad for me, whatever. But nonetheless, I hope for a shorter time horizon. But I don't think you're wrong in the 18 to 24. I think it's this one's going to play out. I don't think crypto is going to be directly with it, but I think a lot of folks are looking at crypto right now and then they're going to say, okay, real estate, what are you going to do? Because it's just up, up. I mean, a friend of mine, four houses, he got outbid four houses on Saturday. Oh, wow. And it's like, it's crazy. And I'm, I was telling my, my niece, they're buying a house. They're moving next week. I was like, sell your house now. Go sign a two-year lease. Sell your house now because it's already worth a hundred grand more than they're, they've got it under contract for, right? And it was being built. I was like, sell it. Yep. Pocket that hundred grand. And then when somebody messes up, you slide into that REO, get that foreclosure, you know, and then you can get it priced right. But I'm the old uncle. So, you know, that's not fun and <laughs> cool, you know, but anyway, <laughs> And they've been renting since they got married uh, several years ago. So she told him, I told her that she's like, she's like, I want my own place. I'm like, well, you know, then that's what you do. But if you want my advice, I'd sell the damn thing now. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow. So now we don't have the arms like we used to, or is that even a product for sale? Like, do you still sell it? It's just now starting to make a comeback. I will say that. And they're different now than they once were. And I haven't done an arm an adjustable rate mortgage. I haven't done an ARM product in years, probably since the 08, 09, 2010. Mm-hmm. But right now they're coming back. They are starting to pop up on the rate. I've heard some other lenders starting to quote them, but they're coming back. You know, it used to be like, okay, your rate is fixed for five years. And then beginning in year six, it's going to adjust once a year. They're taking that down to now it's going to adjust every six months as opposed to every 12 months. So I found that kind of interesting. The fact that they're coming back now, it's like, I'm no Nostradamus, but come on. Like, you know, history repeats itself. And the fact you've confirmed it, you heard it here first, folks, I hope. (laughs) But here's the thing about an arm versus fixed. 
the fixed rates are still so low and we are so spoiled with interest rates. I had somebody be like, oh, my rate's three and a half. That's so high. No, it's not. <laughs> 18, that's high. <laughs> 10%, that's high. 1983, I believe it was. They built a subdivision behind me and it seemed like within like one weekend, it just, boom, the foreclosure notices went up and these people bought homes with 14 and 15% brand new, or, you know, brand new homes and you know, we want that. That's a great. I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of my questions. That's towards the end. But you know, we, we're over a decade of artificially low interest rates. We are right. They've been kept, and and you know, simple supply and demand says, but some at some point they've got to snap back. Even with the Fed with this quote unquote inflation, which I don't know how you throw trillions of dollars into the market and not expect inflation. But sorry, back to the point of rates. Do you see? Do you fear? Let me ask you this: Do you fear rates increasing any? No. Not at all. Here's my crystal ball on interest rates. I think that we're going to have another good two years of really lovely rates in the range that we are. We've already hit bottom, but I will say this. Today, interest rates are a quarter lower this week than they were a year ago in this week. So rates are still super, super good. I think that so much of, yes, inflation is bad for rates. And nobody likes that. But I really think the Fed is going to keep things under control. They watch inflation very, very closely. There's actually an inflation report coming out on Thursday, I believe it is. But the other thing that goes hand in hand with interest rates that a lot of people maybe don't realize is the amount of debt. So every time that they're throwing another trillion dollars out and handing it out to consumers, it increases that debt and that helps to keep our rates low. There's a whole chart about it. I've got this chart. I did a video on it a couple of weeks ago and it shows over the course of 40 or 50 years, the amount of debt that the country has versus where interest rates are. And I just love geeky mortgage history. (laughs) But it's interesting to see. So the more that this country stays in debt, it's going to keep our rates low. Would you mind sharing that that graph? I don't mind at all. I can give it to you because it's over there on my little chart. It's on one of the pages. And what I actually did, so the chart came from Barry Habib with MBS Highway, which I've known him forever and I subscribed to his services, but he did the chart that showed that. And then I took it one more level. I wanted to know who was president then. And it's interesting because you just brought up 1983. A lot of people don't remember in 1980, 1981, when we had the gas crisis, Does anybody but me remember having to stand in line to fuel up your car, right? Based on the last digit of your license plate determined what day you could get in line. You could buy. That's right. And back then I was telling this story actually at a dinner party recently. And some of, and I hang, we hang out amazingly with a lot of people younger, but there was a young couple there in their thirties. And I was telling them this story. And I remember my license plate number. It was SQT 504. So I was an even Right. And back then we didn't have self-service that had not been invented yet. (laughs) It was a full service station. Right. It was my day and I was 20. Right. I was broke. And I literally had like two dollars and seventy two cents to my name. (laughs) Yeah, but that was like 10 gallons. though. It was. It was. But, you know, you sit in line like you wait around the corner. 
I actually just drove by there when I was in Dallas last week because it was right by where I used to live. It's like, oh, that's where I used to sit in line for fuel. But you know, you sit in line and I got up there and I said to the attendant, I was like, I've got $2.72. That's just give me that. That'll give you all my money. And so he starts the pump and then he goes to help the person behind me. And I'm sitting there in my car and I'm watching and it's going to $1 and $2 and $2.50 and $2.60. And it starts to go over like $3. And I'm like, hold it, sir. I'm like, sir, <laughs> come back. And I got free fuel. And that was a big deal because I was like, dude, I told you, man, I only got $2.72. So yeah, sitting in line, that gas crisis was huge back then. Do you remember who was president? Uh, Carter and then Reagan. Well, and if you look and my chart will show. So when Jimmy Carter was president, we didn't have a lot of debt, right? Mm. But we had super high interest rates and big inflation, right? And then when Reagan came along, remember Reagan's big deal, in addition to the Reaganomics and the trickle down policies, Reagan beefed up the military. He spent billions or trillions, whatever the numbers was, beefing up the military. So our country went into debt and interest rates came down. Pretty cool and geeky. And then he got shot. But anyway, no. I remember the day he got shot. I was I was very young. And I know I, I remember walking to a bit a little park at the end of the street. And uh, it was weird because I remember, you know, my dad always talked about Kennedy being assassinated. And then he kind of my dad was a big fan of Reagan. And he kind of laughed at Reagan getting shot. And I was I didn't understand why he's like, I think I shot at the 22. I mean, come on, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, it can be lethal. But I sort of felt the same way on 9-11, you know, like when they attacked us, so to speak. So I remember Carter. I remember my dad yelling about Carter more than I remember Carter. From what I can tell, Jimmy Carter is probably the most decent human being that we've had as president in the last 50 years. He just wasn't the most effective in his in office, unfortunately. But but yeah, I remember the gas lines. I remember, you know, the interest rates that just were insane. How are you going to, you know, well, people complaining about three and a half percent. I got four and an eighth on my house here. And I was like, lock it in. I don't care. Lock it in. Yeah. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to roll any more dice. So you might want to refi. Do you need for me to refinance you? I can't because I, I don't have a W2 anymore. I've got to wait another year. I, uh, I've, I've already tried. The judge is making me, the divorce decree is making me refinance the house. I was like, yeah, I probably should have done that before I uh, left the corporate world in W2 and went off on, um, you know, doing my thing. So I have an agreement with the ex. <laughs> like, like, what do you need until I can refinance this thing? I'll give you some hush money, you know, I'll take the kids, whatever. So <laughs> until I can get, you know, two years tax returns and all that fun stuff, I'm really, I'm in no rush. I don't think interest rates are really going to go anywhere dramatically. I mean, I think they might pop up and down. You know, like I said, I always joke, you know, they say I may not have married the right woman, but I divorced the right one because the relationship's great. The kid, she lives around the corner from me. There's still, you know, interaction. So I'm not going to, and it's the mother of my kids. I'm not going to turn my back on her, but I did tell her, I was like, look, I can't refi, right? So you take me to the judge or whatever, but I'm telling you, I can't refi. Nobody in their right mind would refi. And I tried. I called some door knockers and, hey, can you refinance me? Two years of W-2 or 1040. It's like, no, 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 don't have it. But yeah, anyhow, <laughs> I went down that road. Sorry about the refi because I do need a refi actually. But anyway. We'll figure it out next year. Yeah, well, ex- exactly. The correlation that you, you share between the debt and the interest rates, fine. And then you lay it over with the presidents. I, uh, yeah, that's going to be a nice a nice touch because I don't think this, the U.S. has, you know, since Carter, I don't think we've seen inflation. We've had our spikes and our scares, certainly, but it wasn't prolonged as like that period of the late 70s into the early 80s were. But that's a cool correlation. So that's good to know especially from a private lending perspective. What about the late 80s with the savings and loan crisis? Oh, that was so much fun. 
<laughs> you have the floor. <laughs> I used to have a t-shirt. The name of our company that I worked for at the time got changed so many times that we had a t-shirt that had the first name and a big X through it and the next name and another X through it. And it got to down to where we had like five names. The SNL crisis was interesting. And, and I was very, very young in the industry at that point in time. But I remember the RTC, the Resolution Trust Corporation that was formed by the government, if I recall correctly, to bail out the savings and loans. Everybody just went, but see, didn't that also happen as a result of the oil crisis? So my memory of my, I said my dad, and I haven't researched this or fact-checked this, so Facebook, please bear with us here. But the savings and loan, the banking systems, whatever, they were highly leveraged to oil and the price of a barrel. And so when it drops, then credit facilities dry up. My dad was a chemist in the upstream oil field. I did insurance adjusting in the upstream and it just, I worked on the rigs and it just it boggles my mind how if there was history repeats itself time and time again in the oil field and it, it people still like they just think that hundred dollar oil is going to stick around forever. Right. And, you know, they just think the party's never going to your point in Wall Street in OA. They just think the party's never going to end. And then it does. And then it's not like you're missing one musical chair. You're missing all the chairs and there's no more music, period. Right. You got to pick up the pieces. So banks will lose money, take it on the chin. Credit facilities dry up, shrink. And then people get the, uh, what was it? Greenspan's irrational exuberance. They go buy the F-350 pickup truck when all they need is a little four-cylinder S10 or whatever, you know. Here's the common thread. All of the crashes that I've seen, the common thread is the word that you just said, leverage. When everybody is highly leveraged, one small thing goes wrong, then you're toast. Yep. So that's why I think that where we are right now today is going to be different. It's not going to be, you know, a hard crash where everybody falls on their face because there's a lot of equity in homes right now. And I think that that our Fed has learned from so many mistakes of the past and I think I just really have a lot of confidence in our Federal Reserve System that they're going to do the right thing for the government, for the consumer, especially. I think that they will keep inflation in check. You know, and when they dole out this money, what is the new one? $3,600 per child as of yesterday. Did you hear that news story? My therapist said I shouldn't watch the news. <laughs> therapist is a wise person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't. I turn on a little CNBC or Bloomberg from time to time, but I did not hear about that. I understand there's a new tax credit or and I didn't know it was going to be a payment, but I understand it's child credit. I heard it just in my daily market updates that I get. But when the government doles out free money, even that, I mean, last year, look at all the companies who got the free PPP money, mm -hmm. right? And if the government's going to hand out free money, you've got to say yes to that. But what happens when they dish these payments out to the consumer, it's an immediate go out and spend, right? So it's immediate gratification and spending of the money. But then as time goes by, so you go out and you buy a new car and the new car is great. The dealer made money and the salesman made money. And, you know, the insurance guy made a little bit more money. And so everybody made a little bit of money because I just bought a new car. But then they spend the money. And then there's this, wow, now we don't have any money anymore. And the person who bought the car, wow, now I've got a car payment. So that's three to $800 a month. That's non-expendable income anymore. And all of those things need to be factored into all of this free money that the Fed is dishing out. And I don't know if they do, but... 
it's kind of interesting. So we'll see what happens. But what I heard yesterday on my market update is that, and don't quote me, Facebook world, go Google it yourself. <laughs> exactly. Because I don't have kids. So I'm not getting any money. My daughter's grown and my stepsons are all grown. So I'm not getting any, but it has to do with payments each month. It depends upon how old the kid is and they're going to start the payments in July. So like 300 a month starting in July. And then at the April of next year, April, 2022, you get a lump sum for the rest of it. it that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. We'll see how that plays out. That's all we can do on these, you know, free money situations. We just got to write it out and see how it plays out. Yeah. Look, you know, lucky, blessed, whatever, <laughs> white. I don't, you know, <laughs> COVID did not affect me because I was already working from home. And the only transition that, well, my kids didn't go back to school after spring break. Right. And um, I love them dearly, but they had a choice when the fall of 2020 came around. They said uh, the district here said you could do in a virtual or in person. And I was in person. My kids like virtual. I'm like, no, no, you're getting out of my house. And you're going to school every you're day. You're going to school. Yeah, you're definitely going to school. We got the joint checking account with my ex. We had we got our stimulus check. And now she was laid off because of COVID very early on. And I didn't have any, you know, issues with, you know, the extra unemployment that was given, you know, because of this pandemic. As what I didn't like was immediately she said, Oh, you know, you normally have to apply and look for work if you're taking unemployment. And the government was like, No, you don't have to do that now. I'm like, Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Okay. Sure. But, you know, we got that stimulus and I, I said, you know, do we donate it or whatever? And lo and behold, it was time for the orthodontist. <laughs> and so Amazing I said, how that happens. Oh, yeah. perfect. There's something we agree on where that money should go. So yeah, you know, but to your point, that was a luxury, you know, it was not a necessity. It didn't go to pay my rent. And look, a one-time pop of $1,400 over six months is not going to change anybody's life. I don't understand the reasoning behind it. I think you take that same $1,400 and you give a little bit to the bank that has the mortgage and tell the, the landlord he doesn't have to pay his mortgage for six months. And then, oh, by the way, Mr. or Mrs. Tenant, because your landlord doesn't have to pay, you don't have to pay rent for the next six months. That's all going to be covered. Now, everyone's going to be made whole, but everybody gets a little in the chain rather than just giving the tenant $1,400 and then everyone else up the chain still gets screwed. So, you know, nobody asked me how I put it together, but that's what I thought. And when I had too many beers and whiskey one night, I figured. <laughs> you know what I would like to see the government do? Because the problem that we have right now in housing is a shortage of houses, right? And lumber went up and the price of houses went up. There's a lot of builders who won't even price out a house because they don't know how much it's going to cost them to build it. It's crazy. So what if, why doesn't the government like give some money to the builders of the world so that they can build houses at a cheaper price point so that we have more product to then sell to the buyers, right? So if we had more builders building affordably, it might change the whole dynamics of this housing shortage that we have. But, you know, somebody run that up the flagpole to the feds and... <laughs> I tell people all the time, when I rule the mortgage world, you know, I will change it all. So vote for Jill. <laughs> You're already the queen of mortgages, if, if I'm not mistaken, right? So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, all you need to do is wave your scepter, <laughs> say a few words, and it shall be so, right? My scepter is, it's over there on my shelf, so I could go get it. No. <laughs> but yes, I'm going to wave my magic wand and everything is going to be wonderful again. 
Mm-hmm. So now that we've cured the ills of the American econ- economy and, and what the government's doing with it. So you think we're going to see a little bump in 18 to 24 months, a little cooling down of the current economy. It's interesting. You know, I'm seeing memes on Facebook and social media where it used to be photos of pallets of cocaine. And now it's just, you know, lumber, <laughs> you know, two right? by fours, and two <laughs> by sixes and plywood. <laughs> and there's like $1.2 billion confiscated at the border or whatever. It is insane right now. So I think, you know, we're in a line with that. Got us through with the savings and loan and Mr. Bush's children had savings and loans and they were bailed out. They were in Colorado. Do the research. Oh yeah. Or Mr. Zuckerberg's going to let that one in. But <laughs> <laughs> it's all about who you know, baby. Oh, who you know. Obviously, I want to want you to get your plug in. So if people want to contact you, want to get a mortgage through you, how do they find out uh, how you can help them make good decisions? Well, an easy way to find me is at jillunderwood.com, which is my little website. My cell number is on there. I also have a Facebook page. I believe my Facebook page is Jill Marie Underwood. My LinkedIn profile, you know, at Jill Underwood. Those are really the best places to find me. But I'm pretty sure that I've got a pretty good SEO out there. If you just Google Jill Mortgage Queen, I'm pretty sure you're going to find me. <laughs> I imagine so. Or you can just go to the show notes page and I'll have all the links for all the contact info for everybody so that they can get in touch with you. And I was going to say thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing your knowledge over the you know the last 40 years in the mortgage industry. Thank you for curing the ills of the economy with, uh, <laughs> with me. Is there anything, uh, any parting wisdom you want to leave us with? Or it can be anything. I will say that I really think that it's important that as a consumer, just make good choices. You know, look at your options and make a good choice that's going to last and make sure that you are seeking help from a true advisor and not just somebody that's just random off the internet. You really need a good referral to a true advisor who really does have your best interest at heart. Yes. I'm not going to name names, but there was a certain seller for a home builder that told a friend of mine that, no, you can, you can totally quit your job before you purchase the house. No big deal. <laughs> like, had, you know, go get that extra credit card right while you're at it. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So jillunderwood.com, just search Jill, the mortgage queen Underwood, right? Yes. That's me. Thank you so much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. And I wish you sleep for the next two years. Cause I think you're going to need it. Uh, once the housing <laughs> thing gets leveled out. And uh, as long as we have these artificially low rates and, they can put the supply back there. And then, you know, then there's the refi aspect of it when things shift. So yeah, I wish you sleep and rest. <laughs> Thank you. I am very big on getting my rest. I really am. I'm really good at being balanced in life, believe it or not. So, but thank you so much for inviting me to come on your show. My pleasure. I feel very honored to do so. Oh, well, thank you. You've honored me by being here and, and talking. So the pleasure is all mine. <laughs> Take care. All right. Have a great day. And there you have it, folks. I'd like to thank Jill Underwood for stopping by today and discussing her experience through several market cycles and what was different in you know each one. And to learn more about Jill or how to contact her, then head over to the show notes page for links to her social media, her website, and how to contact her directly. But also for the image of the graph that she mentioned. Very, very interesting little tidbit. I did not realize that uh, Carter had zero 
debt or very little debt when inflation was out of control. So I find it not drawing any conclusions, but I find it very interesting. And, and that is just one of the reasons why I wanted to, to bring Jill on the show today. So you could, uh, you know, hear about it. I wasn't in the business, but I do remember in the 80s watching my dad go without a job, strip centers and houses had been foreclosed upon and for lease and yada, yada, yada. So anyhow, go to the show notes page, find out how you can get in touch with Jill. Her website is jillunderwood.com. And then you can go through and get all the links to all of her social and and whatnot. So that's going to do it for today's episode, uh, which is 129. And I don't charge money for the show, but there is a cost to produce it. And I would be extremely grateful if you could help get the word out and increase awareness for the show by leaving me an honest rating and review over at Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever platform you're using to hear my voice. But it would really mean the world to me if you could take the time and leave an honest rating and review over at iTunes. It's still the 400-pound gorilla in the room and the one that shifts its weight around. And reviews on iTunes really does go a long way to help. So that'll generate the most buzz for the show. And it will also help you erase a lot of negative karma. Trust me on that. <laughs> okay. No guarantees or promises. Don't forget to join the Private Lender Podcast Facebook group. The links on the show notes page are just, you know, Google, or not Google search, sorry, just search in groups for Private Lender Podcast. And don't forget the Private Lender Academy will be dropping in or launching in July of 2021. Go over to privatelenderacademy.com for more information. Okay, that's going to do it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. And in addition to mindfulness and self-awareness, I wish you safe and successful private lending. I'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Private Lender Podcast with your host, Keith Baker. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit privatelenderpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review, and we'll catch you next time.